Good afternoon. I'm Siddhant Isser, a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'd like to thank the University of Toronto Center for Ethics for the invitation. It's, a wonder, it's wonderful to be part of this excellent series. My talk entitled Reflecting on Black Lives Matter, Visions of Abolition Democracy, looks at how the contemporary demand for police abolition must be recognized in relation to positive democratic struggles against racial capitalism. In response to the longstanding crisis of state-sanctioned anti-Black violence, exemplified most recently by the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, among a much longer list, including Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Tony McDade, protesters marching under the banner of Black Lives Matter, or BLM, have taken to the streets in the US and internationally, from England to New Zealand to Brazil. In the US, calls to defund the police have been a staple demand echoed by protesters across states. On June 7th, nine members of the Minneapolis City Council, a veto-proof majority, pledged to disband their police department. It is important to note, however, that the demand for police abolition and the redirection of resources away from policing and the carceral system more generally is not new. Rather, a number of activists, scholars, prisoners, and formerly incarcerated people have long articulated the need for abolition, pointing to both the historical roots of policing and imprisonment in the preservation and protection of a system of private property and capital accumulation, which included chattel slavery and land expropriated from indigenous populations, to the ways the penal system in the neoliberal era becomes the primary way for the state to manage social, political, and economic inequalities. In the latter sense, the contemporary carcer carceral state is a direct response to the systematic gutting of the welfare state from the 1970s onwards and a reaction to social movements of the mid to late 1960s that were fundamentally challenging the status quo and prevailing political, economic, and social order. The point being that abolition, in the words of BLM and activist groups such as Critical Resistance and Incite, is not simply a negative demand to remove the police or prisons, but is also simultaneously the demand to create and invest in robust social safety nets and public institutions that can address human needs from housing to employment to healthcare and mental services. What abolition ultimately boils down to then is the whole scale restructuring of the capitalist state and society. In this talk, I focus on the positive conceptions of abolition and democracy, what we might call following Angela Davis and W.E.B. Du Bois, abolition democracy, that the movement for black lives, I argue, is pushing for. Specifically, I connect the demand for abolition to the notion of racial capitalism, which is understood as a foundational element driving historical and ongoing anti-black oppression. I argue that the movement for black lives, anti-capitalist vision, which seeks to contest and dismantle racial capitalism, 
is rooted in an abolitionist democratic politics. My talk thus clarifies how demands for abolition need to be understood as inextricably linked to democratic anti-capitalist politics that seek to reconfigure existing social relations. My talk is divided into two main sections. First, through a close reading of the Movement for Black Lives policy platform released in 2016 entitled A Vision for Black Lives, I demonstrate how and why the platform draws on the concept of racial capitalism in their analyses of contemporary anti-Black oppression. Subsequently, I surface the abolitionist democratic program lying at the core of BLM's emancipatory vision. Combining a critique of private property with a framework that is attentive to indigenous sovereignty and the racialized material effects of capitalist exploitation and expropriation, the policy platform, I argue, forwards a rich theoretical and political resource for thinking about contesting racial capitalism and really re-envisioning democracy and the institutional structures and organizations that this would require. I end by looking at some of the implications of BLM's democratic program, particularly with regard to contemporary anti-capitalist and anti-racist politics. It should be noted that the policy platform that I'm drawing on here is from 2016. However, the movement for Black Lives is in the process of releasing an updated platform to reflect the last three to four years. So keep an eye out for that. Also, there are links below to resources that dig deeper into the concepts I bring up in this talk. Now, scholars such as Barbara Ransby and Robin Kelly have articulated how historian and political theorist Cedric Robinson and his notion of racial capitalism articulated in his book, Black Marxism, forms a cornerstone of BLM's understanding of black social and economic oppression. The Movement for Black Lives policy platform, in fact, explicitly positions itself as anti-capitalist and names racial capitalism as a key driving force, perpetuating racialized material inequalities intergenerationally. But why does BLM turn to the framework of racial capitalism? I argue that racial capitalism's unique structural analysis allows the platform to bring slavery and its legacies colonialism, anti-Black racism, and capitalism into one analytic frame, thus connecting historical and ongoing forms of racialized violence to the contemporary situation of Black populations. Consider the first demand of the policy platform, end the war on Black people, which calls for abolishing all prisons, jails, and detention centers for both adults and juveniles. Here, the platform details how the US over the last 40 years has turned to confinement, control, and imprisonment as the primary mode of addressing social, political, and economic inequities. At the same time, the platform links the last 40 years, which is the neoliberal era, to the longer history of anti-Black domination from the time of chattel slavery to the Jim Crow period. The framework of racial capitalism is precisely useful because it affords a way to grasp the historical and structural connections between anti-Black racism and the workings of capitalism, including the ways 
capitalism relies on the exploitation of wage labor and the expropriation of land, labor, and resources from particular racialized and colonized populations. Before going any further, let me just clarify. There are a number of problems with Ro Robinson's original account of racial capitalism, as various scholars have pointed out. For example, Robinson's historical argument about the existence of racial hierarchies in feudal Europe is deeply contested. Also, Robinson's book, Black Marxism, develops a highly masculinist account of the Black radical tradition. His readings of Marx and Engels and conclusions about Du Bois and C.L.R. James are rightly debated. Yet, I do not think that these charges fundamentally compromise Robinson's conceptualization of racial capitalism as a world system. What makes Robinson's racial capitalism attractive to BLM is not whether or not feudal Europe was constituted by racial hierarchies, but his distinctive structural account of capitalism. In this respect, rather than following a logic of homogenization as Marx and Engels and certain orthodox left thinkers claim, Robinson contends that capitalism works through a logic of differentiation. It is this structural logic of differentiation that helps Robinson center both free, waged, and unfree, unwaged forms of labor exploitation and expropriation within capitalist production. Through this structural framework, Robinson looks at the role played by colonialism, the slave trade, and unfree labor in capitalism's historical evolution. Robinson's analysis basically stands in opposition to a teleological and developmentalist reading of Marx and a reading of capitalism that sees capitalism as solely revolving around free wage labor exploitation. Now, given BLM's overall goal to expose and politicize anti-Black racism, it makes sense that the movement employs racial capitalism and not simply colorblind critiques of capitalism. More boldly, the main import of Robinson's theory of racial capitalism for BLM is its ability to explain the persistence of racial domination within capitalist society without treating race as merely superstructural to regimes of capital accumulation. In doing so, BLM challenged both the white left and liberal anti-racists. Indeed, absent an analysis of racial capitalism, the left creates space for the proliferation of liberal individualized conceptions of racism rather than a structural analysis of anti-Black racism. And I'll be talking more about this towards the end of my talk. Having established how and why the policy platform turns to Robinson's work on racial capitalism, I now attend to the ways BLM envisions dismantling the system of oppression. Here we can more clearly see BLM's positive program of abolition democracy. To this end, I turn to the economic justice demand of the platform, exploring BLM's emphasis on democratic control and the decommodification of natural resources. What is especially striking about the demand for economic justice is that it underscores a critique of private property, especially in relation to the privatization of natural resources 
and the effects that this privatization has on communities of color, particularly black, brown, and indigenous communities. The demand thus calls for the democratization of the use and distribution of resources while acknowledging indigenous sovereignty more broadly. More specifically, the demand states, quote, a right to restored land, clean air, clean water and housing, and an end to the exploitative privatization of natural resources, including land and water. We seek democratic control over how resources are preserved, used and distributed, and do so while honoring and respecting the rights of our indigenous family. At the root of racialized disenfranchisement, colonial land dispossession, and the lethal effects of environmental racism and anti-Black racism more generally, is the fact that land and natural resources are treated as commodities under the racial capitalist order. The primary solution proposed by the platform is to move beyond a market fundamentalist approach and devolve power away from corporations and state level actors to local communities. In this way, the platform seeks to implement what they call a fair development agenda that is regulated through mechanisms such as participatory budgeting and the establishment of community land trusts, cooperative sectors, and general community control over decision-making and resources. Within the context of BLM's critique of racial capitalism and the push to develop a de democratic community-controlled economy, we see a vital node of Black and Indigenous solidarity. For instance, in their statement of solidarity with water protectors fighting against the Dakota Access Pipeline, BLM asserts that, quote, we are in an ongoing struggle for our lives. And this struggle is shaped by the shared history between indigenous peoples and black people in America, connecting that stolen land and stolen labor from black and brown people built this country, end quote. These two examples from BLM reveal the centrality of land dispossession, stolen land, in the struggles of indigenous peoples and the pivotal role of labor expropriation, stolen labor, in the historical experience of black populations in the United States, in each of their struggles with the racial capitalist state. In fact, in, Minneapolis, in the Minneapolis uprising, we saw these bonds of solidarity play out firsthand with members of the American Indian Movement Patrol providing security to protesters and certain black and brown neighborhoods. To go back to my point, BLM's recourse to racial capitalism thus informs not only its critique of anti-black violence, but also lays the foundation for BLM's abolitionist democratic program. This latter aspect forms the substratum through which BLM can forge solidarity with various other movements fighting against forms of capitalist exploitation and expropriation. In other words, while detractors of BLM have pointed to its particularistic posture, BLM's call to place resources under community control signals a desire and need to deepen democracy, to make structures of governing and power responsive to the people rather than to the state corpor corporation nexus 
that is characteristic of liberal democracy under racial capitalism. In this respect, BLM's political vision enacts what some have called a politics of insurgent universality. I'd like to close um, this talk by thinking about some of the ways BLM's democratic politics emergent from its critique of racial capitalism and the contemporary carceral state troubles any easy binary between anti-capitalism and anti-racism. And here, just to be clear, I'm also broadly sketching some of the implications of the critical theory of racial capitalism that my own work develops. First, the framework of racial capitalism offers a political rejoinder to sectors of the left that inadequately attend to the ways race, capitalism, and liberal democracy are connected. In presenting racial domination as extraneous to the material and subjective relations of capitalism and particularly contemporary neo neoliberal capitalism, such analyses in effect unmoor racial domination from political economy. This move subsequently seeds ground to individualized, basically liberal conceptions of racial discrimination, giving rise to forms of anti-racism that are located at the level of individual prejudice. Second, instead of blaming struggles around race, gender, and sexuality as breaking up an imagined a priori unity and distracting from an authentic real struggle, the lens of racial capitalism calls into question the existence of an organically unified working class, proletariat, or demos. Working through a logic of differentiation rather than homogenization, the framework of racial capitalism shows how free wage labor exploitation is predicated on racialized and gendered regimes of expropriation. Interrupting the persistent reproduction of racial capitalism, a regime that is held together by the cross-class glue of white supremacy must thus involve intense effort to bridge the exploitation and expropriation continuum. From BLM, we learn that one concrete way to bridge this continuum and build solidarity is through a democratic abolitionist politics. Finally, by providing a more unified framework to understand the interrelations and connections between capital accumulation, race, colonialism, patriarchy, and other modalities of oppression, the analytics of racial capitalism and abolition democracy provide a theoretical foundation and political horizon for why anti-racism needs to be central rather than an afterthought to anti-capitalist politics. They also push us to think deeper and imagine democratic futures beyond the narrow confines of the liberal capitalist order. Thank you so much. <laughs>